welcome to the latest episode of the Fremdlauschen podcast, where you have the chance to eavesdrop on a native speaker telling you about the current events, history, pop culture, politics, news of America. So right now, everyone in the U.S. is talking about one story. And it's not the fact that our former president is up for impeachment again. No, 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 no. We're talking about Britney Spears because of course we are. There is an incredible amount of debate and discussion about Britney Spears' situation right now because the New York Times released a documentary called Framing Britney Spears in the U.S. It's streaming on Hulu. I found a way to watch it in Germany by Googling it, and it didn't seem all that illegal. So, you know, there are opportunities out there, but I would not tell you to do anything you shouldn't do, of course. So Britney has sold 100 million records worldwide. Talking about selling records, kids ask your mom if you don't know what that means. I don't even know how they count anymore. I know it's all streaming, but she makes $50 million a year selling perfume in drugstores. Just sit with that for a second, 50 million. And this woman has also been under a conservator for the last 12 years of her life. She can't make her own decisions about her medical health, about contracts she signs, about her business, about her children. That's what she's been living with for 12 years. When I became aware of the Free Britney movement, probably a couple of years ago, I went back and thought and looked up some of the information and I could not believe what we as a society did to this woman in the early 2000s. It is shocking. Um, it's embarrassing for people like me who loved those gossip blogs so much. It is insanity. And so I thought maybe we would go back, review a little, and talk about where we are now. I'm going to start with just a brief biography of Brittany, because I think it is important to know where she came from to see where she's ended up. She was born in 1981 in Mississippi, raised in Louisiana. Both are in the southeast of the United States. Uh, she grew up in the Bible Belt, really socially conservative, evangelical. Religion plays a big role in people's lives there. She was part of a lower middle class family. Her parents are named Jamie and Lynn to make things very complicated and in my opinion, very Southern. She also has a sister named Jamie Lynn. So when I say Jamie, I mean her dad and not her sister. I think her sister doesn't really come up. And she has a brother, Brian, who's older than her. Brittany had a really special and evident, clear talent as a kid. She did singing and dancing and gymnastics, but what she could learn in her small town wasn't enough for her. At some point, she moved to New York City, lived in an apartment there, sometimes with her mom, sometimes with a chaperone, while she looked for work there. Her family struggled financially to pay for these lessons, to pay for her time in New York City. It's not a cheap place to hang out. And by all reports, it wasn't that much of a happy home. Although Lynn was a really good supportive mom who was doing everything she could for her kids, she was married to an alcoholic who didn't end up going to rehab until her, the kids were grown. I mean, it was 2004 when he got sober. Jamie started businesses and then he failed. He filed for bankruptcy. There was a lot of uncertainty in this home. Jamie even recently testified in court that his relationship with Brittany has always been, and I quote, strained. 
which makes it seem very ironic that he is now in charge of her entire life. Brittany got her big break when she was cast for the Mickey Mouse Club when she was 11 years old. This was kind of like an afternoon singing, skit, dancing show. I mention it also because the other people on the show with her at that time all kind of got famous, or a lot of them did. So that's where you would see her with Christina Aguilera, Ryan Gosling, Carrie Russell, and Justin Timberlake, literally the arch enemy of this podcast. I have done two episodes, and in each of them, Justin Timberlake has shown up in a misogynist, disgusting way. So yay. My new podcast goal might never to be in a position where I have to mention Justin Timberlake again. That should be pretty easy, too, because I'm not planning to talk about denim tuxedos or getting married at plantations or bad highlights or bad singing, for that matter. When the show ended four years later, when Britney was 15, 16, she went back to Louisiana, she finished high school, and she started thinking about the rest of her career. At that time, a solo pop act, particularly a young woman, was not of the moment at all. It was all Backstreet Boys in sync with Justin Timberlake, the Spice Girls, and so on. So Britney did get a recording deal because of her talent, because of the fact that she'd been on TV already, but no one really knew what to do with her. She had kind of a soulful, low voice. She kind of had this serious, focused vibe. And so they sent her to Max Martin, who is the hero of the story. He is the anti-Justin Timberlake because he's the Swedish songwriter who was super big in the 90s. And he manufactured pop stars and he wrote songs for them. The only problem was that they never made much sense in English. So if you go back and look at some of those Max Martin smash hits, they make literally no sense. And he wrote baby one more time. So there are some lines in there where you're like, what in the world does Britney mean? Britney's trying to help a Swedish guy out. Like she's singing his words and trying to make them make sense. So Britney was out there hustling at the age of 16. And when the song baby one more time came out, it was an instant hit. You all know that video of her in like the little schoolgirl outfit, walking through the halls of school. She was kind of a pop idol for younger girls. People her age thought she looked cool. Older men probably liked the whole Lolita thing. So gross. But she was also the perfect MTV star of her time because she seemed approachable. Fans felt a really strong connection to her. And MTV had these like afternoon talk shows where TRL, it was called, where um, stars would kind of stop in and show how cool they were and kind of walk around and... Britney did that all the time, and people really started to see her as someone they could be friends with. Pretty quickly, Britney started getting a lot of advertisements, and she was really vocal that she was involved in the business side of her career. She was always saying, I'm not a child who was pushed to perform. I wanted this. I know what I'm doing. You know, there was always a question of how did this young woman get so successful so quickly? What is it about her? And I think at the end of the day, it comes down to that she was the reason for her success. She was polite. She was gracious. She was cheerful. She was super easy to work with by all reports. And she just really sold her image and her songs. And because this was the late 90s, of course, you could only be an innocent or a whore. You couldn't be both. And so the contradiction in Britney's image 
of kind of, is she a sexy vixen? Is she a sweet virgin? That caused the media to tear this girl apart. And we all watched it happen. Rolling Stone did a cover story with Britney with very sexy pictures in April 1999, when she was just 17 years old. These pictures are really iconic. They are taken of a young woman, very young, not even an adult, actually a child. Um, The pictures were taken of her on a bed in sweet little clothes. You can find them really readily on the internet. I don't know if Rolling Stone ever apologized for this, but this was really one of those moments where everybody now looks back and kind of says, ugh, that was, that was bad. The New York Times documentary really puts it into perspective. America was talking about sex in the late 90s, all day, every day, on every television channel. The scandal around Bill Clinton and his affair in the White House, which later led to impeachment, in 1998 really started a frenzy, a feeding frenzy of reports, and that went on for a year. You might have noticed I don't call that the Lewinsky affair, the Monica Lewinsky affair, because that's another young woman who was really treated poorly and really damaged by the media and by her circumstances and the way powerful men treated her. Uh, She's a great follow on Twitter. Um, And now she's kind of an activist and talks about privacy and women's rights and seems like she came out the other side, thankfully. So we've got the society talking about sex 24-7. We've got this beautiful girl where no one knows, is she a girl? Is she a woman? What is she? I think she wrote a song about that later. Um, Britney was treated really strangely and really crassly. And it was so, so sexist. And she kind of always sat there and answered the questions politely and smiled and never said, you know what, this is bullshit, stop it. Maybe she should have. Brittany would sit down for interviews and these people twice her age would ask her about the size of her breasts and if she'd had a boob job. They would ask her about her virginity, especially because she was dating Justin Timberlake from 1999 to 2002. And so they would literally ask her, well, when are you going to sleep with Justin? Because, you know, that's a totally appropriate question to ask in a professional setting. And really, what should the girl have said? She was not in a position to, like, get up and leave the interview, storm off stage. She also wasn't in a position to go, yeah, you know what? We're both adults. We love each other. We have sex. But it's also nobody's business. Brittany was backed into a corner and based on the fact that a lot of her fans were really young and she had this super religious background herself, what was she supposed to say? And so she lied because we all would have lied, right? So she and Justin break up at some point. He becomes a solo artist around the same time. And then he decides to sing like a canary about their relationship. He confirmed they'd slept together in a like, I'm such a bro way. And then he weaponized the video that he made to cry me a river. If you've seen it, it's like this revenge fantasy where you see someone who looks a lot like Britney cheating on Justin and him walking in on it. He allowed people to congratulate him publicly for getting into Britney's pants. Can you imagine that? In late 2003, Diane Sawyer, who's like a noted American journalist, quite serious, interviewed Britney on Primetime Live which is like this TV show. I think it might still be on, who knows? And she accused Brittany of breaking Justin's heart and causing him pain and said, you know, 
Your image is suffering because you must have caused that breakup. You're a bad example for kids. It's really hard to be a parent when there are pop stars like you out there. And Britney sat there and tried to defend herself as best she could. She even said, hey, you can't blame me. I'm not really here to babysit your children. But you could tell that her image was suffering. There's kind of a similar interview with Matt Lauer from later where she's um, crying about being chased by paparazzi and Matt Lauer is telling her why it's all her fault. And I only mention this because he was one of those prominent TV stars, serious white men who was Me Too'd and has been really banished. And I don't think he's on the air anywhere. I don't think anybody wants to hear anything from Matt Lauer anymore. So good for him. So our real story begins in 2004. I wish I could say we're going to reflect on an easier time, a gentler time. But in doing my research, it was a really disgusting, sexist time. It's when there were multiple websites counting down to when Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen would turn 18. Because these were child actors who we had watched grow up from the time they were six months old on television. And people could not wait until it would be, and I quote, legal to be with them. How disgusting can you get? Oh, but I can top that. There were also a lot of celebrity gossip sites popping up on the internet. The most famous and definitely the worst was PerezHilton.com. So not Paris, but Perez. He would actually take pictures of young women and draw disgusting things on top of them and write terrible words on top of their pictures and then spread them all over the internet. At the same time, tabloid magazines were exploding. So this wasn't the like celebrity-friendly people magazine. This was Us Weekly and In Touch and all of these sites and all of these magazines were buying paparazzi pictures because suddenly everybody was super interested in these celebrities. They're just like us pictures. There was a real hunger for pictures of celebrities doing super normal things. And so the more audience there was for the pictures, the more media needed different pictures of the same people. The more paparazzi were there to provide them. There was more money in the game and they were there to collect. This was also the time of Paris Hilton, Lindsay Lohan, and all of those kind of wild girls, including Britney, who just really were out clubbing and having fun. They were wild girls. They were stumbling out of clubs. They were looking drunk. You could provoke them. They would cause a scene. And pictures of Britney doing this kind of thing could be worth tens of thousands of dollars. It's really important to remember in this context that there wasn't social media like we know it today back then. There was MySpace, but I don't think Britney was making that much of a use of it. Um, so that means if a, if a celebrity wanted to show themselves, if they wanted to contact their fans, they could only do it through traditional press or the gossip columns, the tabloids. And so it was kind of a symbiosis. Britney needed the paparazzi and the paparazzi needed her. So in January 2004, Britney had just turned 22 years old and she had been on the world stage for six years when she had a probably pretty fun night in Las Vegas and ended up married to a childhood friend of hers. She did not have him sign a prenuptial agreement and he was nice enough to agree to annul this wedding 55 hours later. I always thought this guy was pretty nice. 
But then he um, popped up in the news a couple of weeks ago because he was part of the Washington, D.C. riot. So maybe not. So after that, things started happening pretty fast in Britney's world. She had a major injury that made her have to do some physical therapy and cancel some shows. And only six months after her very short marriage to that childhood friend, she got engaged to Kevin Federline, who was a backup dancer of hers. And she'd known him for three months at this time. Did I mention that Kevin Federline had a pregnant actress girlfriend at the time? Yeah, that was unfortunate. And suddenly, there is our pop princess, Britney Spears. She looked a little trashier. She was smoking in public. She was, I think, walking barefoot into public bathrooms. She got married in September 2004. She married Kevin, luckily with a prenup, and kind of immediately filmed a reality show called Britney and Kevin Chaotic, which was very chaotic. And people watched this and thought, ooh, this is not going to end well. And guess what? It didn't. There was intense media attention on these two. There was always talk about Britney's appearance, that she looked different. She looked less taken care of than she had. Britney had a really public unraveling. She lost control of that public image that had been crafted so carefully. There were light bulbs all around her. The paparazzi were constantly screaming. Britney would tell them that she was scared of them. She would ask them to let her pass. You can see paparazzi videos in the New York Times documentary where you can just see that she was always swarmed by these people. If she was in a car, there were 20, 30, 40 people pressed up against the car, banging on the windows, while there were 50 other people taking shots from far away. I don't know if you've ever had your picture taken like that. If you're famous, <laughs> you've had your picture taken with 20 flash bulbs at once. I think it's probably really disorienting. And there was such competition among the paparazzi that they would be fist fighting each other. <laughs> you know, she's trying to get in and out of her home or a gym or an office building or whatever. And they would be pushing and shoving and screaming and pressed up against her and flash bulbs everywhere. And she would just be saying, let me through. It is so terrifying to go back and watch. One of these things that was always happening back then is that paparazzi would go and say um, that a celebrity had hit them with their car. And when you see these videos, they are hanging on the cars. The people can't get out of the car. They can't move the car. They're just sitting there. They're trapped like animals. It is infuriating and it is scary and it makes you feel claustrophobic just to see it. So within about a year of her marriage to Kevin Federline, Brittany had announced that she wanted to start a family and she had her son, Sean Preston, in September of 2005. So really just about a year after the wedding. In September 2006, exactly one year later, her second son, Jaden, was born. This means she was pregnant with a very, very young infant. Anybody who has kids out there can maybe try to understand what she was going through, being nine months pregnant with a baby who's 12 months old. So, and when she was about five months pregnant with her second child, she went to Starbucks, as she, she was always going to Starbucks. She went to Starbucks and came out. The baby started fussing because there were paparazzi everywhere 
She claims the paparazzi were scaring the baby. They were slamming the cameras against the glass um, windows of her car. And so Brittany put her baby on her lap and drove away. Suddenly, everyone was a better parent. Everyone was a better mom. And everyone recognized this as a really dangerous situation. Obviously, you should not be driving in Los Angeles with an infant on your lap. You shouldn't do it. But is it a reason to destroy someone's life? Because that's basically what happened. The paparazzi who were always following Brittany anyway were suddenly following her and hoping to find signs that she was a terrible mom. So if she was walking and she tripped, then it would be like, oh, look at this dangerous woman carrying her baby and she trips. What would have happened if she'd fallen down? And I'm not kidding. These are real headlines. This is what we did to Britney Spears. So I keep saying the dates so you can hear how quickly everything happened. So her second son was born September 2006. November 2006, she filed for divorce. It was finalized a year later. I think there was you know, some custody issues and some financial issues to, to work out. Looking back, Brittany's mom says that she thinks there's a really strong indication that Brittany was suffering from some pretty serious postpartum depression upon having her first child and then her second child um, and living under this constant stress and scrutiny. So when her second son was four months old, she had already filed for divorce. An aunt that she was really close to died in January 2007. In February 2007, Brittany started going to rehabs, sometimes for a day, sometimes for more. It was always publicized. A lot of times the staff would sell the information to tabloids because, you know, they could get a nice amount of money for doing that. Then there was the famous day where in the morning, Brittany checked out of rehab and in the afternoon or the evening, she shaved her head, filmed from the outside of the, of the salon. She had extensions at the time. She asked the person working to, to shave her head for her. They said no, so she did it herself. Um, if you've ever had extensions, this is much more understandable than if you've never had extensions because really she had a head full of really bad extensions. They looked really heavy. That can be painful. You can get to the point where there's just nothing you can do with them. They can get ratted up. Um, I think that's what happened actually. I think she was in pain and she was sick of it and she decided to take matters into her own hands. I also think she was in a very bad place mentally. So we lived in the United States at the time, and I remember this being breaking news. I remember this being all over the press. Britney snapped, look at her. It was mental illness as public entertainment. There were lots of people making lots of money from her suffering. All of the late night shows made fun of her in their monologues. She was a punchline, people laughed at her. And all of this was mounting and going on to a young woman who might have had mental illness issues to begin with, who might have had postpartum depression on top of it, who was going through a public divorce, privately grieving. And we stood by and said, oh, look, Brittany's crazy. And when all of this was mounting and getting worse and worse, she went to Kevin's house to try to pick up the kids and she wasn't able to for whatever reason. And she was then cornered with a friend or a cousin in a parking lot by two paparazzi. And she had had enough. She was sitting in the car. There are videos of this in the documentary as well. And they were saying, hey, Brittany, what's wrong? What's going on? Tell us about it. 
And she did. So she got out and took an umbrella and attacked their truck. They got a real money shot of her, of Brittany with this panic and this rage in her eyes, just attacking them with an umbrella. In September 2007, Brittany performed Gimme More at the MTV Awards. This was supposed to be a comeback, but it was really a bad idea. She didn't look well. She didn't seem like she was all there. It was really, really troubling. And when I go back now and look at all of this and realize this is a woman who was going through a divorce, I honestly think that a lot of what Brittany did was because she was fearful or being threatened that she wouldn't be able to keep her kids, that she would lose custody to KFED. I'm not saying that they weren't better off with her ex-husband. I'm just saying I think that's where a lot of Britney's actions came from. And so it all spirals. In October 2007, she lost custody of her sons to her husband, ex-husband, but she also released her fifth studio album. But she couldn't really promote it because she wasn't well. She fired her manager, who she'd had around her for many years. She became estranged from a lot of her family. She was alienated from her real friends, but of course, bad friends found a way to worm their way in. She was approached at vulnerable moments by people who were trying to abuse her, trying to get money out of her, trying to get close to her and use it. So it was bad. It was really bad at the end of 2007. She even entered into a relationship with a paparazzo, which I think was really the sign of like, things aren't going very well here at all. In 2008, in January, she had a custody order to turn the kids over to Kevin. And when his contact person or when he came, she barricaded herself in her bathroom and refused to come out. The police were called. She was taken to the hospital for a psych evaluation. And she lost the right to see her kids indefinitely until people could figure out what to do with her. And on January 31st, 2008, just a few weeks later, there was a similar situation at Brittany's home, ending with the police coming, calling an ambulance. There are pictures taken from photographers out of helicopters, which were swarming above her building as she was put into an ambulance, taken to the hospital and put under a 5150 hold. That 5150 is something you hear about quite a lot because it's a Californian law and that's where the celebrities live. It's um, a psychiatric hold that can be done on you without your consent, so it's involuntary. The police can call and have you taken to the hospital for up to 72 hours for like a psychiatric evaluation. They can only use it if they think you're a danger to yourself or a danger to others. And when that happened, Jamie, her father, filed for a temporary conservatorship. This is um, kind of a guardianship that's designed actually for elderly people who can't take care of themselves or their money or people who are disabled and won't get better and can't make these decisions. This is not something that should be used for someone who will get better. This is for an Alzheimer patient. This is for an elderly person who's lost control of their faculties. And interestingly, normally if they're doing this for mental health reasons, they'll go through a different court system in the U.S. or in California, and then you'll have kind of doctors deciding if this should continue or not. But 
because this conservatorship started in a different court, that's where it stayed. It's really stayed in this system that is made for permanency, where you're not really supposed to get back out of it, where it's relatively easy to get in and almost impossible to get out. And at the time, everyone kind of thought, oh, look, Jamie is sweeping in to save his daughter. Most people didn't know that he hadn't had much of a role in her life up until then. And she was put under a conservatorship led by her dad and a lawyer. It's important to say that the courts take these things really seriously because essentially they are stripping away the civil rights of someone. They are giving your control to somebody else because they think that you cannot act in your own best interest. These are meant for people who are unable to manage their financial affairs or if they're susceptible to fraud or undue influence. So you can kind of see that tying back to Brittany being involved with people who weren't good friends, who didn't have her best interests at heart. So in here's something that might surprise you. Brittany is under two conservatorships. She's under one for her estate that covers all the financial stuff, right? So it's her tours, her contracts, her deals, her money, basically, everything to do with her money. But she's also under one for her person. That means there is somebody in charge of her medical care who can see every file, talk to every doctor, all of her treatment, who can visit her at home, if she can have a cell phone, if she can have social media, if she can date somebody, if someone can be allowed into her life, if someone is considered safe, if she wants someone to be at her home with her and her conservator does not agree, that conservator has ways to get people out of her life, fully legal ways. And at the time, again, we are talking 2008, Brittany realized that she wouldn't be able to resist the conservatorship which, if you think about it, showed a lot of judgment, which makes you wonder if the conservatorship was actually necessary. But she knew she wouldn't be able to resist it. So she had exactly one request. She said she wanted someone independent to take care of both conservatorships, to take care of the money and to take care of her personal one. She did not want her father to be in charge. She tried to hire a lawyer, But then the court said, well, you can't hire a lawyer. You can't have your own counsel because you are unfit. The court appointed a lawyer, but nothing really came of it. Her requests, her ideas were not accepted. Her father and a lawyer were put in charge of her conservatorship. In late October of the same year, the conservatorship was made permanent because Brittany had consented to it originally in order to see her children. Her visitation rights were restored after she signed the conservatorship. And if the conservatee, that's Brittany in this case, wants to end the system, the situation, after having given consent, it's nearly impossible. She has to prove that she doesn't need it anymore. And how are you going to do that if you can't even see your own doctors, right? And so here's the crazy part. Brittany's supposed to be very unwell. She needs her father involved in literally every decision. And so within the first year of this situation, of this conservatorship, Jamie has MTV come into their home and film a documentary of Brittany getting ready for her comeback. She immediately went back to work, immediately. She was a guest star on How I Met Your Mother. 
She was in this documentary. She dropped an album at the end of 2008. She went back on tour. And there was this new business management with Jamie involved. And by 2009, she was on this terrific path, at least financially and from a business standpoint. She was a wholesome brand again. Everything seemed to be quite positive. But Brittany was not making any of her own decisions. But she was profitable. She earned $58 million that first year. And at some point after touring um, for her albums, Brittany got the ultimate cash cow. She was offered a residency in Las Vegas. That's when they kind of build you a theater in one of the hotels and you perform there night for night. It's considered a pretty easy job because you do the same show over and over and you don't need to travel to go on tour. People come to you. And she was making a million dollars a week doing this. And you know, Brittany's always loved performing. She always felt loved by fans. This was perfect for her. And daddy Jamie Spears was sailing right along. He was getting 1.5% of all the sales for this residency, including merch. Just him. This wasn't something he shared with Brittany. This was just his. On top of the salary that he got for being in charge of her estate. So what we had was a world superstar that we hadn't really heard speak in a genuine way in the last 10 years. There hadn't been a single interview where Brittany didn't have handlers on both sides of her, telling her what to answer, telling interviewers what questions they were allowed to ask. Brittany had become unknown and unknowable. And then she got Instagram. And her Instagram was always really fun. It was little videos of her doing fashion shows and dancing and having kind of a good time. A podcast called Britney's Gram started, and this was two young women who are trained journalists who were basically doing a fun, light comedy podcast about things they saw on Britney's Instagram. Sometimes you could see her house or, you know, you could look at her clothes. The little fashion shows were fun. And then suddenly things started to go a little bit wrong. So in 2018, they were going to do a new Las Vegas residency with Britney. Everybody knew there was going to be an announcement. It was being live streamed. There was an audience. Britney was supposed to come out, go on stage, maybe sing a little, make the announcement and leave. So Britney walked across the stage, down the other side, through the crowd and got in the car and left and didn't announce a residency. She literally walked in, through and out of this event. It was pretty shocking, especially, I assume, for the people paying for the residency. And a couple of months later, Brittany canceled the residency and she said it was because of her father's health issues, because she wanted to be with her family. It was really abrupt. And then Brittany disappeared. So this was January, early January, 2019. She just stopped writing anything on Instagram. And so there was this hashtag, where is Brittany? She kind of did something really unexpected, gave a reason for it and disappeared. Then the guy who wasn't her dad, who was also on the conservatorship, quit out of nowhere. Brittany came back to Instagram because people were like, where is Brittany? What is going on? She wrote that she needed some me time. And then she ended it with an emoticon, which is like, you know, a colon and then a parenthesis to make a little smiley face. 
she used an emoticon instead of an emoji. And a lot of people realized, oh, this isn't Britney writing this. And I know it sounds crazy to say that, but this is a girl who uses 25 emojis with 10 words. And I'd never seen her do it before. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I don't think that she necessarily wrote this. There was news then that she had voluntarily checked into a mental health facility. But this, of course, is a big question. Her management claimed that she went on her own and she wasn't being forced. And then that silly podcast I listened to that kind of went and looked at all of her Instagrams, they got a phone call, an anonymous phone call from someone claiming he worked for the lawyer of, of Brittany and that he was a paralegal and that Brittany was being forced into taking medication, had been forced to go to this rehab facility and that she in fact had been there basically since the beginning of the year, long before she made the announcement that she had gone. The podcast was able to verify the identity of the caller and that he, in fact, held that job, but they couldn't verify the content of his statement. But Britney's camp never sued and never commented on this, which is strange because anytime you anger them, they sue you. And so what's been happening since then is that people have begun picketing, protesting outside the courthouse whenever Britney's cases are being heard. It used to be that everything was sealed, everything was private, hidden from the public, was not allowed to be released. Um, but media attention has grown and grown. And Britney's lawyer has actually come out and said he'd like everything to be public. He'd like Britney's fans to know what's actually happening. So the family and the business dynamics are also changing. At some point, Jamie had some kind of physical altercation with Britney's sons who were kind of preteens at the time. Um, Kevin Federline then took out a restraining order. So if Jamie was in Britney's home, the kids couldn't go there, blah, blah, blah. After that happened, Britney's family, the rest of them, started to be a little more vocal. So her mom started sharing things on social media saying, you know, I do support this movement to help Britney get out from underneath this. I do think it's time for her to have a voice again. As 2020 progressed, um, Britney's lawyer was becoming more public, saying that she welcomes and appreciates the informed support of her many fans. That's why he wanted the files to be public. They were saying the whole world is watching. And all Britney is asking for this whole time is to remain under the conservatorship for now because she knows it'll be hard to get out of it, but to have her father no longer be in charge. In fact, her lawyer has now said very publicly that there is a conflict between Brittany and her father and that Brittany is refusing to work at all until her father is no longer managing her career. Her mom, who has since divorced her father many years ago, um, has actually asked for a new conservator in Brittany's name. She had stayed out of it for a very long time. And now she's also come out and said, OK, a conservator's fine, but, you know, not this guy. And it must be so maddening because there really are conflicts of interests here. Brittany is paying everybody. She pays her lawyer. She pays her ex-husband in enough child support to keep him and his new wife and his four other children happy and fed and housed. She pays the conservators for their job that she doesn't want them to do. She pays the lawyers of the conservators. So at the end of the day, who has her best interests at heart? These people who are profiting financially 
from her being under conservatorship, they're never going to let her out. So Brittany has now been asking for a trust to take over this position, um, taking care of her finances and her person. Jamie has fought that again and again. Her lawyer describes her as a high-functioning conservative, which is an oxymoron because if you're under conservatorship, you're not supposed to be able to make your own decisions at all, are you? Um, The breaking news, I guess, is that late last year, Brittany did not get exactly what she wanted in court. She did want this financial services company to be in charge of her estate, and instead they were put in charge of the estate together with Jamie. Jamie immediately fought back and tried to get the court to remove the co-conservator, and yesterday the court came back and said, no, you will remain co-conservators. It's very strange. I mean, she doesn't want him and he refuses to go. And really, everybody has begun talking about this again because of this new documentary. And we're all kind of thinking, wow, you know, 2008 was a different time. That's a long time ago. And here we are over 12 years later. And Britney Spears is still in this situation where she cannot make choices about her own life. And she is maybe not screaming out to the public to help, but she's definitely filing a lot of court documents to help with the support of her mom and I think her brother and sister. Yeah, so the Free Britney movement itself can get a little crazy. Like they think that they can sometimes read things that she's you know, put out in makeup on her face that if you look close enough, you can read this and that. I think that's all a little bit conspiracy theory for me. But it is something that's interesting. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a legal um, issue, right? So it's an interesting legal issue, but there really is a woman underneath this who's been living like this for 12 years. And I don't think any of us can imagine that. Yeah, so I won't be making my bright pink free Britney sign and marching around with it, but I will be following the story and I have a really strong opinion of it. I have the really strong opinion that somebody independent should be in charge of this conservatorship because then maybe an independent decision can be reached if it's even necessary at all. And I don't think people are working in Britney's best interests right now. And I'm actually kind of proud of her that she's like, okay, then I won't work. How about that? So when the documentary came out, of course, everybody was waiting for a reaction Britney's reaction is probably a little bit more restrained than it would be if she weren't living under a conservatorship. She released a clip of her song Toxic with the quote, each person has their own story. Remember, no matter what we think we know about a person's life, it is nothing compared to the person living behind the lens. I actually um, prefer the statement that Sam and he's been her boyfriend for four and a half years. I actually really prefer his statement because he wrote and then repeated to cameras the following, and I quote, Jamie is a total dick. I think I agree. Dateline Dusseldorf, guys, we have breaking news. Justin Timberlake has apologized to Britney Spears and Janet Jackson, and nobody cared. Um, I'm available for comments, questions, and concerns at Fremdlauschen on all the things. Um, I just realized that's probably a really dumb name because no one can spell it, but I like it. Um, It's F-R-E-M-D-L-A-U-S-C-H-E-N. All right, talk to you guys next time. And stay away from Justin Timberlake, definitely. Bye!